we are uh, jumping into a new series today. Uh, we spent uh, five weeks uh, looking at some tough questions uh, that all of us individually might wrestle with or some of us wrestle with, and we are now jumping into a series uh, on the core values that uh, we see as uh, being significant to the life of our church as we move into the future. Today we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. Maybe you've heard it before. If you've been around the church, you probably had. I would invite you to maybe hit pause on the assumptions that you know exactly what this passage is meant to say and, uh, and maybe listen for the first time again as we hear God's holy word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray together. Lord, would you be with us as we jump into this new series, as we engage with these topics? We are thankful for this time together, and we pray that you would be honored in all of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one time when I was uh, a little kid, I was playing at my grandmother's house, and uh, I was one of the youngest grandkids, and so I probably got away with a little bit more than maybe some of my older cousins who, you know, had, had a few more rules early on, but by the time I got there, she would, you know, kind of let me have the run of the place. And I remember running around one day, and I ran past this little table in her living room, and on this little table in her living room was one of the strangest and also one of the most plain photographs I had ever seen in my entire life. It was just, I mean, it was, it was a normal picture. It was this picture of a boy. It was, you know, like a, it was like a school-age kid, and, and he, he had one of those smiles. Now, it wasn't like a real smile, like you would actually were enjoying yourself and someone takes a picture of you. It was one of those kind of half smiles that you give somebody when you're, somebody's trying to take your picture and you're not really sure if you want the picture taken, and they say, smile, and you kind of, you know, break your lips a little bit, but you're not really smiling at all. But I, I knew that smile. I mean, I saw the picture and I said, and, and I I knew that kid's face. I mean, I, I knew his nose and his eyes. I, I knew the way that he sat and his, and his shoulder. And, and it freaked me out. Because looking at it, it was a picture of me, but, but I, I, I knew that I had never had somebody take that picture of me before. And I thought, what is my grandmother playing at here? And so I went to her thinking that maybe she was teasing me, maybe that it was some kind of joke that she had, you know, she, she, loved, she loved modern things. She, she, she had a, um, she had like a, a, one of those Christmas trees that you put the lights on in the 70s. She, she had all this modern stuff, and I thought maybe she had gone to like Life Touch and, and done this trick on me that this was going to be some picture that I never had. And she said, no, Sam, it, nothing that complicated. That's your dad. And I thought, no way. 
She said, yes, Sam, that's a picture of your dad when he was your age. Oh. Oh, okay. See, sometimes we, we have family resemblances, don't we? That we, we just, you, you look at a picture and you say, that person is a part of that family. The, the photo itself might look different. The clothes that somebody is wearing in the picture, they might look different. The background might be totally different. And yet that family resemblance, it just kind of shines through. When we're talking about core values, that's kind of what we're talking about. We're saying, what are these things that, that come up in the life of our church that we see? What are these traits that are handed down from generation to generation that you kind of see over and over again? But as we talk about these core values, they are meant to be more than just passive things that we inherit. They're meant to be active things. They're meant to be values that we want to instill in people, that we want to hand off traditions and patterns and rhythms of life that we think are important. We say, here, take this. This is valuable to us. And so what we are going to do is we're going to take five weeks to explore some of the core values of our church. Now, this is not saying that these are all of the values of our church, But as we looked as elders, we said, okay, what are things that are so important, so essential that we want to recognize them and we want to hold on to them and make sure that other people have them? And so what we've done is we've discovered, we've explored, we've seen these five core values. And the way that we put them together is they're written as these kind of two-word combinations. And the purpose of that is it's to give a little bit of clarity, to give a little bit of, of contrast. You'll see as we go through this, because the danger is that sometimes core values end up being, you know, very, very general. You know, they, uh, they're very generic and, and you say, well, everybody has the same thing. They all say and sound and look almost identical. Or what ends up happening is that sometimes when you're talking about values of an organization, they're entirely aspirational. You say, this is what we want to be. This is what we want to do. This is what we want to hold as true. And what we wanted was something that was less aspirational but more true of to say, this is who we are as a people. Now, it doesn't mean that, that it doesn't have some aspirational kind of focus to it. We, in many ways, we want to say, okay, this is the best version of who we want to be as a church family. And so we put together these five core values. Now, actually, the elders have been examining these and, and working through them and trying to unearth them, asking questions of members of the church, talking about things, saying, if we did this, how would people feel? If we said this, how would people feel? And over the last 14 months, we took a lot of time to say, what are essential things that we have to hold on to? Because we, we recognize that the church is moving in a new direction. It it is. I, I think we all feel it. We all know it. And so we thought it was really important that we know who we are as a church before we said where we're going as a church. 
And so that's why we're doing this core value series right now. We're going to be talking and, and, and unpacking some vision stuff as we move into the future of our church. But right now we want to focus on saying, who are we? Who has God called us to be? Now, honestly, there's lots of reasons for the change in direction in the life of the church. Some of that is kind of obvious, things like COVID. You know, they, they've said that COVID dragged every church five to ten years into its future, which regardless of how you feel about it, we're, we're living kind of in, in a, a little further down the road than maybe we thought we were. But then there's other reasons for changes. I, I hope not bad ones. There's, there's new pastors on staff. There's new elders in the congregation. There's new deacons. There's new leaders. There's new people here. All of those dynamics bring change, and that's really good. But then on top of that, there's a reality that part of the reason for the change was because we recognize that, and, and it's, it was something that was said to me when I got here, that the church on the course that it was on was leading in a direction that ultimately would mean that the church was closed. It was headed in a direction, if I put out a graph, you would see that, that, that attendance and excitement and energy was slowly declining year over year over year, and then COVID threw us 10 years into the future, which is really challenging. And so we recognized that we had to change directions, and we're going to have to change directions, but even as we recognize that there has to be a different future, we wanted to make sure that our first priority, our first priority was saying what things are not changing in the life of our church, what things are staying the same. And so, for instance, our view of the Bible is not changing. We still submit to God's holy and perfect word. We still submit and are instructed and we go for all truth to this perfect book. What's not changing is the way that God cares for us, the way that God brings us together as a church. What's not changing is that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's not changing for us. What's not changing are, you know, we're still going to do the Apostles' Creed because all of those things have been true and are still true in our life. We still, as a church, hold to things like the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and the shorter catechism, doctrinal standards that hold us to a historic faith, that root us in our past, that connect us with the faith that has been handed down from generation to generation to generation. None of those things are changing. And so then where do these core values fit? They fit below that below the essentials of Christian orthodoxy, below our denominational distinctives, our core values are meant to be local distinctives that are essential for us to carry into the future. Now, as you hear them, as we talk through them, it's not that every one of them is entirely unique and that we're saying that no other church does that. We don't want to pretend as if we are the only people that God is working through, but we want to say, how is God actually working through us? And so think about these almost like a, a recipe. 
Maybe when you, when you look at a recipe at first, you, you just see things that are really ordinary in a lot of recipes, like flour or butter or potatoes, right? But it's how you combine those things. It's how they work together to make a specific meal. This week, we're going to start by looking at a core value that should be true in the whole life of our church, that is true in the whole life of our church, but is often most clearly uh, kind of seen and felt as we gather for worship, what we're calling uh, approachable transcendence. That we would say, as a church, we value approachable transcendence. Now, that word approachable, that's kind of easy, right? So that's an easy one. But what do we mean when we use this word transcendence. Maybe that's a new word to you, or maybe that's a word that you haven't heard thrown around in the church. And so what do we mean by that? Well, here's, here's a dictionary definition of the word transcendence. Extending or lying beyond the limits of ordinary experience. Extending or lying beyond the limits of ordinary experience. And so as a church, we believe that it's essential for us to give people a taste of something beyond their ordinary experiences. That people don't just need more of the same. That we don't want to offer them a door that leads back to the same room that they were already standing in in the first place, because that's kind of useless. That we recognize that there is something special about God's people, that there is an interaction with something that is beyond what is the ordinary. There are lots of churches, there are lots of organizations, I'll say, that have shoeboxes. And it's really great that we're doing the shoeboxes again. There are lots of organizations that raise money and give it to hurricane victims. There are lots of organizations that would say, look, we care about emotional health. Or we care about handing values down to the next generation. All of those things are good and true. But it is, it is so much rarer. It is so much rarer that we have an experience of something beyond the ordinary. Of something beyond what we experience on a day-to-day basis. And we believe it's important to celebrate that and to remind ourselves of that on a regular basis. Now, as Christians, we believe that we live in a big universe, that it's, it's vast. It, you can do a lot of science and a lot of experimentation and experience, and that even beyond that, the universe is still going out, and we don't even have the measurements and the tools yet to measure the span and the scope of the universe. But beyond that even, we believe that there is a God who was before all and created everything and who now sustains everything. Now, the Bible actually talks about transcendence a lot. Maybe you don't recognize it. You, if you looked up that word in a word study, you wouldn't find it. But there are lots of other words that are saying very similar ideas that are all over the place. Maybe you use them and you don't even recognize it. So, for instance, there's one word that's used over 600 times in the English Bible that comes from, from one word in Hebrew primarily and one word in Greek primarily. It's all around us all of the time. But maybe 
we don't notice. It's the word holy. The word holy is actually something which is beyond common use. And in our own lives, we, we probably experience things that are in, in some way or another holy. Maybe not in the Bible's way of thinking about it, but they are beyond the common use. So, for instance, Grandma's China. Grandma's China is holy, right? You just ordered pizza. You're about to watch a football game. Do you get out Grandma's China? No, you do not. Because Grandma's China is holy. You use paper plates. That's what you use for pizza at a football game. Now, here's the thing. I don't mean to diss grandma. But when the Bible talks about the holiness of God, grandma's china are like paper plates in comparison. See, God is actually so holy, so uncommon, that often in the Bible, they, they, they actually sync together multiple times repeating that word holy, like we heard in the passage this morning. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of His glory. That one holy actually won't do when you're describing how unique God is, because he is not just like something else that was made. He was not made. He is not like anything else. There is nothing like God. Now, for us, that's a little bit tricky because we, quite honestly, are, we're arrogant Americans. And we think, you know what? We can compare something. We can examine something. We, we know how to deal with this. And the answer is we, we really don't. That the size and the scope of God is so much bigger than anything that we can comprehend that, that it's impossible. So last week I was in New York City and uh, I was in Manhattan. And it was, it was kind of a funny day. The, the hurricane, the remnants of the hurricane had come through and so it was kind of rainy and cloudy. Uh, it was not this beautiful fall day that we had been promised in Manhattan. And, uh, and yet we were, still, we were with a whole bunch of people who had never been there before. So they wanted to walk around Manhattan and, and, and do the touristy things. And so we're walking around, and there's this new high-rise apartment building that is one of the tallest in the, in the city. And it extends just straight up. It just, it just goes. There's no features or details. It just shoots right up into the sky. And because we were there on a cloudy day, it shot just simply right up into the clouds. Now, we know there's a top to that building. But when we're talking about the transcendence of God, there is no top. There's nothing above him. There's nothing beyond him. Now, in the ancient world, to give the, the original audience of the Bible an understanding of this, the image of, um, the image of a king was used. The image of a throne was used, and especially the, the throne and the throne room. And yet, what was said was that, and, and this is hard for us because we don't 
we don't have kings, right? We're our own king. We elect our officials. But in the ancient world, most people, they lived under a king or an emperor. And so the comparison that's made often is people would think of their life, their homes, and the king's palace, which would have been so much grander, so much richer, so much more lavish than anything that they would ever imagine for themselves. And God takes that image and he uses it as a miniature of just how much grander God is. So say, okay, think of the richest king. Think of the richest emperor with all his gold and all his adornments, with whatever trappings he has, in the most posh room you could possibly imagine, which was the throne room. The throne room for an ancient king was the formal living room of our modern world. Maybe, maybe some of you have a formal living room, or maybe some of you have friends who have a formal living room, or relatives who have a formal living room, where all the furniture is a little bit more expensive in that room, where all of the portraits are the nicest versions of those portraits. There's no silly candids in a formal living room. It is meant to be beautiful and important and significant. Your friends are supposed to walk into your formal living room and think, I wish I can be like these people one day. That's kind of what we do when we make a formal living room room. That's what the kings did in the ancient world. They had throne rooms that were full of treasures and bounty and servants. Everything that you could possibly imagine to say that we are more important than you. And then the Bible says, well, that's cute. But actually God is a king of kings. And that his throne is so much higher, so much more grand, so much more beautiful, that the kings of this earth, all of their stuff, with all of their power and all of their possessions, honestly looks like servant in mud huts in comparison. That God is above all of them. And that all of them are actually meant to serve him. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Listen up. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. See, in the ancient world, kings were so far above our normal experience. And then the Bible says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But God is so far above the experience that even a king feels like a commoner in comparison. Now, maybe you notice at the end of that passage, the verse has this kind of baked-in warning, the sense of, of dread and, and, and stress, because the image of a throne room was not a neutral image. It was not meant to be an inviting image. The image of a throne room was meant to be something that honestly caused terror, caused fear, which, that's countercultural for us. We, we don't have that sense of, of grandeur or fear or, or distance. We just, we don't. Probably the, the only time that we interact with a government official and we're actually fearful is when we were flying down a road and all of a sudden we see a car pull out behind us and we realize, 
oh shoot, that's a cop. And then that sense of stress and dread and the little pinch in the back of your neck goes up and all of a sudden you're driving a 10 and 2 like you're supposed to and you're, <coughs> excuse me, you're slowing down. The fear and the dread that people felt about a king was so much more significant than that. To be in the king's presence was to be in the presence of danger. In fact, the Bible warns people to stay out of the king's presence, to stay out of the king's way. The terror of a king is like a groaning of a lion, the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. To enter into the king's presence is like to go into a lion's den. And yet for some reason in the Bible, God is the king of kings. He is holy, holy, holy. If that's true, why would we talk about an approachable transcendence? That doesn't seem to make much sense. Well, it's because that while God is a king of kings, while he is holy, 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 we're also told that there's more. We're told that God's transcendence doesn't mean that he is divorced from his creation. And so that, yes, it is 100% true that God is transcendent above all and before all, and yet at the same time, He wants to be close to you. In my devotions, I've been trying to read the book of Psalms. I, I heard that one pastor reads the Psalms every, every 30 days on repeat, and I thought, wow, that's amazing, and I tried it, and I'm on day like 46, and I'm almost done. But I, so I was recently in this psalm and it hit me. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. There's this amazing truth in the Christian faith that God is absolutely transcendent above all, and yet he still cares. And it's, it's even more than that because we're told that Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God is with us. That the God who is before all and above all rolled up his glory to enter into our world to experience what you experience. That's, that's amazing. And that's why the author of Hebrews can say what he says in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to a throne of grace. Maybe you ran past that when you heard it before. A throne of grace. That, in the ancient world, wouldn't have made any sense. Do not miss 
how radical this is. This is an invitation of the most profound sorts. That through Jesus, you are invited to confidently, to boldly approach the throne of the transcendent, holy, 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 King of kings and lords of lords. As a throne of grace. As a throne of mercy. That's why we can talk about approachable transcendence. It's not because you have a ladder that is high enough to reach to God. It's not because he has given us a path and he says, here's a blueprint and I hope you can make it up the mountain. But because he was willing to humble himself and draw near to us. And because he has done that, we are able to approach him. And this is meant to be true throughout the life of our church. So that as we gather for worship, this is not just a group of people in a room. We can say, God is here. You can go to the New Testament. Now, I tell you what, this terrifies me. It should terrify me. It should terrify anybody who ever wants to think about preaching. That it says that when you preach, people hear the words of God. Which, like I said, kind of freaks me out. That when we partake of this supper, it's not just bread and juice sitting here, but an interaction with the holy God of the universe through the power of the Holy Spirit. That when we pray, we're not just talking to the air. We're having a conversation with holy, holy, holy God. There is something deeply and profoundly, significantly transcendent about all that we're meant to do. And it's not just our worship. It's meant to be our fellowship as well. Jesus says we're two or three are gathered. And we sometimes think that that means the church. He doesn't say between 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. He says we're two or three are gathered in my name. There I am gathered with them. As we gather in small groups, as we gather for Bible studies, as we gather as friends around tables, God is there. The God who rolled up his glory to enter our world, but didn't throw off his glory, is there for you. As we serve people, as we care for people, we get to reflect the fact that the God of the universe came and took on the form of a servant to declare to everybody that God is holy, holy, holy and that the earth is filled up with his glory. And so that he is above all, but he is not far from us. That he is here from us. Which means that in all the things that we do, there is an opportunity for everyone. Not just for those of us who have already encountered Jesus, but for everyone who is willing to encounter Jesus. To encounter a holy, holy, holy God. And find grace. Not terror, not fear, not anxiety. 
We know all of those things, don't we? Those things are common in our world. Dread, isolation, pain, shame, those are normal. And you might deceive yourself and think that if you come into the presence of a transcendent God, that he would magnify those things. And what is amazing in Christianity is he burns those things away. That is why we've recognized that approachable transcendence is one of the core values of our church. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this uh, small passage in Hebrews, but a, a profound passage, Lord, with a glimpse of something far bigger than we could normally think or, or comprehend. We pray that you would help us to hold together this reality that because of Jesus, we are able to approach you, God, as, as who you are above all, before all glorious, wonderful, arrayed in splendor, and yet for us, accessible to us. We thank you, Lord. We pray that we would never settle for thinking that this is, is just a meeting of folks that our church is just another social club, but that we would recognize that in everything we do, we engage with the creator and sustainer and redeemer of the universe. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.